The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com slash connect. Our teaching text this morning is Luke 1, 46 through 55. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. Good to be with you this morning. Happy Thanksgiving weekend to you. I hope you enjoyed your time this week, hanging out with family, all of that. I know for some of us, this was a hard week that uh, because of COVID and the pandemic, some of us couldn't travel. Some of us chose not to travel. For some of us, we did travel and being around family is not the best for us. And so I just want to say that's you. If this week was tough in the midst of a celebration of Thanksgiving, that we see you, we love you, and we were praying for you. We're starting uh, into a new sermon series this morning, as well as a new season in the church calendar. So in America, we have different seasons that mark different parts of our year. So for some of us, we're very much marked by the weather seasons. So summer turns into fall, which turns into winter, which turns into spring. For others of us, we are more marked by the sports seasons, right? So football goes into basketball, which goes into baseball, and hockey is thrown in there somewhere for those of us who care. Uh, For others of us, we're marked by the holidays. So Thanksgiving turns into Christmas, which turns into New Year's Eve, and then MLK and Valentine's and so on and so forth. Well, in the same way, for hundreds and hundreds of years, the global church has organized itself around a calendar, a calendar that has specific seasons that mark different aspects of our shared history, most notably the life of Christ and the life of the early church. Now, different church traditions have different ways that they mark these seasons and different times in the calendar that they emphasize more than others, but they are rhythms of church life day in and day out where we can mark what God has done in history with his people. You may be familiar with one of the seasons that we'll celebrate coming up in February, which is the time of Lent a season where the people of God prepare for Easter and celebrating their resurrected savior. But today marks the start of one of those particular seasons in the church calendar. In fact, this day actually restarts the whole church year. So today is a little bit of the church new year's day. And this today is the first Sunday in the season of Advent. Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means arrival or coming. It's a word used to talk about both the first arrival of Christ that we celebrate on Christmas, where he came to earth as a baby, took on flesh, and to talk about the second arrival of Christ, that there's a day in the future promised in scripture where Christ will come again to make all things new and establish his forever rule and reign. And so we have in this season, in the next four weeks in Advent, is a time we set aside to remember and celebrate that Christ has come and that Christ is coming again. 
It's a season that's supposed to be marked by hope, love, joy, and peace. In fact, if you have celebrated this Advent tradition, you'll often notice that there are four candles that then surround the middle candle. And that middle candle is the Christ candle, but those four candles around it represent these four realities, these four goals of Advent, hope, love, joy, and peace. These four things that Christ came to bring. I think that if there was ever a year and ever a time that we needed some hope, love, joy, and peace, it would be 2020, right? If you're anything like me, my heart over the past 10 months, 11 months has been more cynicism instead of hope, more bent towards hatred instead of love, more bent towards despair instead of joy, division instead of peace. And so to be honest, I am both desperate for and relieved that we are now entering into Advent. I, I need this season. I need to be forced to remember and celebrate in the midst of all the craziness, all the hard, all the uncertainty to remember and celebrate that Christ has come and that he's coming again. And that means there's hope, there's love, there's joy, and there's peace found in our savior. And in the Christmas stories, so what we're doing as a church over the next month is we're going to do some things to help prepare us as a church collectively and as individuals to celebrate the Advent season well, to remember that it's about Christ and not about all of the other things that there is hope and joy and peace and love to be found in this time. And so we're doing three things in particular. The first is we had some members of our church write a devotional guide and it's four weeks long, one devotion for each weekday starts tomorrow and it'll take you all the way up to Friday, December 25th. And it's uh, a short scripture and then a little bit of a written reflection and then some questions to help you think and pray through uh, that scripture. It's available as a PDF on our website. So I would highly recommend if you uh, don't have an Advent guide that you're working through or an Advent devotional, this is one that I would encourage you to check out. It's really well done. It'll help you prepare your heart uh, in your time with the Lord for Christmas. Second thing we're doing, as we mentioned uh, in our worship recording last week, and something we want to do every year moving forward as a church, is we're collecting a Christmas offering. We want to use this Christmas offering every year to bless both a local partner and a national or international partner, people that are doing good work and helping advance the kingdom of God in our city, in our nation, and in our world. And so this year, uh, to take up that offering, part of it is going to go towards our Serve Charlotte initiative, which is our new mercy ministry, where we're going to partner with local organizations in the city that are doing good work to help the marginalized and the outcast in the oppressed. And then part of our Christmas offering is going to go towards the Mission Church, a church plant in the greater Roanoke, Virginia area that's seeking to make disciples and to bless the people in that area. And in the Mission Church in particular has been uh, pretty affected financially by the pandemic with lost jobs and all of that. And so we just want to come alongside of them and bless them as we're getting started to help serve them and love them and help support them as they seek to be a gospel presence in Roanoke, Virginia. And I actually think that this is a part of how we prepare our hearts for Advent. This is a part of how we prepare our hearts and help celebrate Christ and what he has done for us. That we were, as we reflect on the generosity of God in sending Jesus to earth, that we are then spurred on towards generosity. And so we have the devotional guide. We have our Christmas offering. And the third way we're celebrating Advent is right now through our preaching series. So during the next four Sundays, we're going to be looking together at Luke chapters one and two. And specifically, we want to highlight what we are calling the songs of Christmas. 
So throughout the Christmas story here in Luke 1 and 2, there are times where various characters, Mary, Zechariah, the angels, and Simeon, in response to the promised Messiah, in response to Jesus coming to earth, they break out in song and worship, declaring the goodness and faithfulness of God. That in the midst of everything that's taking place in their world and their stories, that God is good and he has broken forth and that Jesus, their long-awaited Messiah, has come. These have been a people in great darkness, the people of God, the Israelites waiting for hundreds and hundreds of years for that which was promised. And suddenly God has shown up so they can't help but break forth in worship and praise. And so our goal in this series and through the offering and through the devotional guide is to quite simply help you fall in love with Jesus through the Advent season to help you when you wake up on December 25th, be more excited about the fact that Jesus came to earth than you are about presents or family or food or any of the festivities of the season, that we would put ourselves in a position and posture our hearts to celebrate the good news that Christ has come and that he's coming again. So today we're going to start with Mary, Mary's song. So grab a Bible, Luke one, we're going to look at 46 through 55. Let me give you some background to Mary's song here, because you have to understand what's going on in her life to understand the weight of her worship of God. So what happens in the story, Luke 1, 26, the angel named Gabriel shows up to a virgin teenager named Mary in the small town of, Na- of Nazareth. Mary was betrothed at the time to a man named Joseph. And there was nothing overtly special about Mary. She wasn't royalty. She wasn't wealthy. She wasn't of high standing. She was really kind of just a simple God fearing Jewish woman in a small town. In many ways, just going about her faithful, ordinary life, waiting to get married. And suddenly, this angel shows up, tells her that she has found favor with God, that even though she's a virgin, she will conceive and bear a son. And they're to name that son Jesus, that he is the praised one, the son of God, the long-awaited promised Messiah who will establish God's forever kingdom. And Mary, rightfully, is like, hold up. How is this possible? I'm a virgin. Like I know how biology works. What's going on here? And and Gabriel responds that nothing is impossible with God. There's proof to Mary. He tells her that her relative Elizabeth, who at this point is well into her seventies or eighties, has also conceived a child from her husband, Zachariah. Two incredible miracle pregnancies. So Mary, in incredible trust and faith, says, all right, I'm God's servant. His will be done. Now, I want to pause here. I don't want us to Christmasize this text. You know what I mean? Where it's like, oh, this is cute. It's a fun. It's the Christmas story. Like, Mary, did you know, et cetera, fluffy sheep, a manger, all that fun stuff. Like this, this is no trivial thing for Mary. Here is someone who, who already probably doesn't have much social standing, who is most likely poor, doesn't have material good, but, but to now be pregnant before marriage. For Mary, this is risking and changing everything. At this point in the story, Mary and Joseph are betrothed, sort of like engagement-ish. So in that time, the Jewish custom was they observed kind of a two-part marriage ceremony. So what would happen is the first step in the Jewish tradition was called Kiddushin. What happened in Kiddushin is that a man and a woman would get legally married, but then they would have to wait a year before they were allowed to be alone together, to live together, or to consummate the marriage. And and one of the reasons for this is that in those days, marriages were arranged. So often the parents of the groom would pay a large bride price to the family of the bride for their daughter's hand in marriage as part of the marriage agreement. So the parents paying all this money to the bride basically would want to wait a year to for one of the main reasons to make sure the wife wasn't or the woman wasn't pregnant. 
And so during this betrothal year, while they're waiting to step, step into this next step, Mary became pregnant. Think about what's at stake here for her, right? Her standing in her family. This would be viewed as betrayal to her father and mother. She would be outcast from them, her, her status in society, right? This would come with so much shame and ridicule. It would ruin Mary's reputation and any standing that she had in Nazareth. Her relationship with Joseph is at stake. And in Matthew, we read about how Joseph, when he gets the news, wants to divorce Mary quietly. Would he really believe this is God's son and this is God's plan? Or had, had Mary simply been lying because of her unfaithfulness? Her future security is at stake. It was near impossible in those days for women to work and they were largely provided for by their husbands. And, and now that relationship for Mary and her future security and provision is at risk. Mary might be left on her own. No family, no future, no means by which to provide for herself. Her whole life getting turned upside down with one angel coming to deliver the news. And it has the potential to be absolutely devastating. But Mary responds, not in fear, but in faith. Her response, Luke 1, 38, she says, I am a servant of the Lord. After this, she goes to visit her relative Elizabeth, who confirms it, who says, no, this is from God. And then we get to Mary's song, Luke 1, 46. You might see the title there in your Bible. This is often called Mary's Magnificat or Mary's Magnification. In other words, Mary's praise and exaltation of God. And, and I want to look at it together. And in light of Mary's backstory, what's happening in her life, what might happen in her future, I want to offer you some encouragement in this Advent season. Specifically, my goal today is to show you a truth about the kingdom of God. And my hope in doing that is that it leads us to worship. That after a few minutes of looking at Luke 1, 46 through 55, and who God is and how he works, that we would all say with Mary, my soul magnifies the Lord. Let's look at it together. Luke 1, we'll start in verse 46. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Mary starts with this beautiful exaltation. My soul magnifies the Lord. This good news, it's all about God. So I'm going to praise him. I'm going to give him the glory and the honor. She says, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Why? Why is Mary exalting Jesus? Why is she lifting him up and praising God? Well, she tells us, verse 48, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. God saw Mary in her lowliness. He didn't choose Mary to bear Jesus because she was impressive or powerful or wealthy or popular. He saw Mary in her lowliness. That word lowly, that humble estate, when it's used in the Bible, seems to be talking about someone who is kind of disregarded by those around them. Someone who would be in the lower part of their family, the lower part of their society, their, their town, someone who others would view with contempt or even possibly disdain, someone who is cast aside or outcast or marginalized. And, and this is Mary. And yet God chooses her. God looks on her there in her lowly estate to play this imminently crucial role in his kingdom and the story he's writing in the world. And now instead of disdain, Mary's hope is that people would look at her differently. Look at verse 48. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. This is bold faith. Remember the danger for Mary is that she could be publicly shamed, cast aside without hope and without a future. But her faith and her trust is that this is truly from God. 
and that it won't result in her being shamed, but blessed. That she is valuable in the story of God, that she is crucial and plays a crucial role in the coming of the Messiah. Mary trusts that God looks at her and says, no, you're not useless. You're useful. You're not outcast. You're included in my plan. You're not marginalized. You're necessary. You won't be looked at with disdain. You will be called blessed. Mary is such an important character in the story of Jesus. Now, now you can definitely take this too far, right? Like many do in the Catholic tradition. So we don't pray to Mary. We don't think Mary is a co-redeemer with Jesus. Mary is not divine. She doesn't forgive or pardon sins. We don't worship Mary, but she is blessed. She's crucial here in the Christmas story. Her faith to, to believe something as audacious as a virgin conception, her willingness to trust God through though her entire world is getting turned upside down, her courage to lean into her role in the redemptive purposes and plan of God. Mary is someone to look at, to emulate her faith, her courage. She continues verse 49, for he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. Mary says the might of God is in full display here. He is the one who has caused a virgin to conceive. He is the one who is sending his son as the long awaited promised Messiah. He is the one who is orchestrating and behind all of this. It's his might. It's his power to do great things and holy, unique, distinct, set apart, totally other and above all the rest. Holy is his name. And that's the, brings us to the first thing we see in this passage. Number one, Advent is for the lowly, not the exalted. Advent is for the lowly, not the exalted. And Mary is the clearest example here, right? The fact that God would send his son, the savior of the world through a poor teenage virgin in a forgotten about place like Nazareth. How incredible that God would choose this person in this time and place in this part of the world. But this is how God works. This is the upside down kingdom of God. God uses the lowly. God uses the ones who the rest of society would push aside. God uses the ones who feel like they have nothing to offer. God uses the ones who feel beaten down by the storms of life, not the exalted ones. God uses the lowly ones. God's heart is for the lowly. His heart is for the downtrodden. His heart is for the cast aside. His heart is for those whose circumstances feel crushing and overwhelming, who feel forgotten about, who look around at their lives and think there's no way God's going to show up in this. God's heart is for the lowly. That's how you're feeling in this season. If that's how you're feeling in it this year, let Advent and the good, wonderful, beautiful story of Christmas be a reminder to your soul. God loves you. and He uses the lowly. He sees you in your lowest state. He sent Jesus to die for you. Why? So that our souls, like Mary, would magnify the Lord, not ourselves. So that he gets the glory. So that he gets the honor, the praise, the worship. Advent is for the lowly because Advent is for God's glory. His glory he has shown throughout all history, now put on display through the arrival of the promised Savior. Let's pick it up in verse 50. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Number two, Advent is for the worldly foolish, not the worldly wise. Advent is for the worldly foolish, not the worldly wise. 
God has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. So we read in verse 51, right? The, the worldly wise don't believe the Christmas story. The Christmas story is one that really, if we're being honest, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? A virgin birth to a poor teenage girl in the nowhere town of Nazareth, while the Jewish people are under Roman oppression, sent to Bethlehem to be born in a stable. No part of this story makes sense. Where's the royalty? Where's the pomp and circumstance? Where's the king rising up on a white horse? Where's the power and the overthrow? Without a gospel lens, none of this makes sense. It all seems foolish according to the world's way of thinking. But again, that's the upside down kingdom and wisdom of God, right? He does things according to his wisdom, his plan, his purposes, not ours. And he calls us to faith, to trust in him. Even if the rest of the world thinks it's foolish, even if the rest of the world thinks it's silly, God works according to his wisdom, to the shame and demise of those who think they all have it all figured out to those who think they can reason themselves into a flourishing life, to those who think they know it all. Look at 1 Corinthians 1 with me. Verse 18, Paul writes, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Skip to verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. The good news of Advent, of the coming of Christ, is for those who the world would say is foolish, who the world would say is unwise, who the world would say is crazy. You see, the cross, a life of discipleship to Jesus, all of it is for those who the world would call foolish, right? Who they would look at and say, I can't believe you would devote so much of your Sunday to church, to serving. You have two days off a week. Why are you giving one away? I can't believe you would orient your schedule around this group of people that aren't your nuclear family. I can't believe you would rework your budget and put less towards vacations and luxuries so you could be generous to the people of God in need. It makes no sense why you would choose to live in that neighborhood. Don't you know how dangerous it is? How foolish it is to believe in something like a virgin birth or that God took on flesh or that he died on the cross to forgive sins. Such fairy tales. The Bible says the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who have tasted and seen and experienced the good news of Jesus, it is everything. It's power for life, for godliness. Go to verse 52, Luke 1. For he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble a state. Number three, Advent is for the humble of heart, not the proud. Advent is for the humble of heart, not the proud. Advent is for the lowly, those who are brought low by their surrounding circumstances, their struggles, their situations and suffering. But Advent is also for the lowly of heart. Those who approach the manger with humility, viewing others and God as more important than themselves. You don't have to read very far in the Bible to see the way God views the proud. Right? Part of the first sin of Adam and Eve in the garden, Genesis 3, Satan came and tempted them. God doesn't want you to be like him. Pride. Pride. All throughout the scriptures. Luke 14, 11, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. James 4, 6, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God does not tolerate pride. 
Pride leads to ruin. Pride leads to self-exaltation and worship. Pride leads to idolatry. I can do what I want. I can worship what I want. I can live how I want. But God's upside down kingdom is one of humility. Right? While the rest of the world shouts, elevate yourself, build a brand, make a name, get the praise and status that you deserve. You're the captain of your ship, the master of your destiny, the king of the castle. God's kingdom is upside down. God's kingdom is for the humble of heart. Not for those who elevate themselves, but for those who go lower. Not for those who just try to grab and reach for more, but those who sacrifice their good for the blessing of others. God's kingdom is for those who say it's not about me. My life is not about me. My time is not about me. My finances is not about me. My church is not about me. My family is not about me. It's about him. God's kingdom is for those who say, you know what? It's God's kingdom, not mine. I'm a servant. That's the role I play. He is the king. After all, humility is a necessity for belief in the gospel. Without humility, you cannot say, I'm a sinner in need of a savior. Without humility, you cannot throw yourself on the mercy of Christ. Without humility, you cannot come to the cross desperate for forgiveness and salvation. Without humility, you cannot put your future hope in the hands of a baby in a stable. The gospel necessitates that we with humility admit I'm a sinner. I'm separated from God. I cannot save myself. I cannot forgive myself. I cannot justify myself. I need a savior. I'm desperate and I'm needy. God needs to show up. And he did. That's what we celebrate in the Advent season. God sent Jesus to make a way for sinners to be reconciled to him. Number one, Advent is for the lowly, not the exalted. Number two, Advent is for the worldly foolish, not the worldly wise. Number three, Advent is for the humble of heart, not the proud. Pick it up in Luke 1, 53. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Number four, Advent is for the hungry, not the self-sufficient. Advent is for the hungry, not the self-sufficient. He has filled the hungry with good things. The rich he has sent away empty. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus warns against riches and material wealth. He talked about money just as much as he talked about basically anything else. Not, not because money in and of itself is bad or evil or wrong. It's not a, a bad thing to be rich. It's not a bad thing to have money or possessions, but because Jesus knows the temptation that it is to put our hope and our trust in money and the security that we think it offers us instead of in Jesus. It's the call for us, those of us with a lot of material goods and those of us without much is to not trust in riches, right? Not to trust in what we do have, not to trust in what we want to have, but to trust in God. This Christmas season is one really where the pursuit of more is pretty evident, right? So statistics say that over the next four weeks leading up to Christmas, that one in five American households will go into debt and their debt will be an average of somewhere around $1,300. And listen, I get it. Right? I love Black Friday just as much as anybody else. But, but hear me on this church. Let's not equate the hope, love, joy, and peace offered to us in the Advent season with the acquisition of more. Let's instead use this time to, as Jesus says in Luke 12, 21, make ourselves rich towards God, to be rich in good deeds, to be rich in generosity, to, to give our lives away, not in pursuit of more stuff or advancing our personal little kingdoms, but to be hungry for the things of God and the advancement of his kingdom. This is part of why we want to do a Christmas offering every year as a church. 
right? Not just the devotional guide, which is good, not just the sermons, which are good, but to actually set aside time to go, hey, we as a church and as individuals want to intentionally remove a little bit of our grip that we are tempted to have around our money. We were tempted to say, this is for me. This is for my comfort, my security, my status. Instead of saying, no, my hope is in Jesus. My comfort, my security, my status, my worth is not in what I own, but it's in who owns me, Jesus Christ. So we have the tangible opportunity and part of how we prepare our hearts to celebrate and to remember that Christ has come and Christ is coming again, like we celebrate in Advent is by taking a step in generosity. By saying, no, my hope is found in Christ who came, who died, who rose again. This is the upside down kingdom of God, not in more stuff, but in more of Christ. Advent, the kingdom of God, the arrival of the promised Messiah are for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for God's will, for God's provision and care and the gospel moving forward, who hunger for the things of God, not the things of the world. Let me end here. Go to verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, to his offspring forever. The Israelites had been waiting for so long, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, longing for the promised Messiah, longing for the one who prophet after prophet after prophet said, he's coming. He's going to be here. He's going to come. He's going to redeem God's people. He's going to bring you back to God. They had been waiting and waiting and waiting. When is the promised Messiah going to arrive? And suddenly God bursts on the scene through the announcement of an angel and said, the Messiah is here. But God's king and God's kingdom were not like the people thought they were going to be. The king was born in a manger, not a palace, to a teenager, not an exalted queen, what looked like folly, not wisdom, to a, to a humble teen postured in her heart as a servant to the Lord, to a poor couple, not a rich one, to redeem God's people from their sins, not from the Romans. God's king and his kingdom is an upside down one. It was and is far better. It's way better than the Israelites imagined. It's way better than they thought it was going to be. They thought this Messiah was going to come and he was going to redeem them and bring them back to their physical earthly land. And instead they got something so much better, someone so much better. King Jesus, the son of God who took on flesh to redeem them, not from their oppression by Rome, but from their oppression by their sin, their slavery to their sin, their addiction, their shame, their guilt, their separation from God, and to bring them back, not to a physical home, but to a forever home with him. Look at what 1 Corinthians 1, 26 says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Paul here is talking about us, right? We are those who are not wise according to worldly standards, who are not powerful, who are not of noble birth, who appear foolish and low and despised. We were the ones dead in our sin, lost in the darkness, separated from God. And yet Jesus, our Messiah, our Redeemer, our salvation has come for us. That's the hope and the promise and the celebration of Advent that a Savior has come for those who are lowly, 
rejected, outcast, downtrodden, suffering, for those whose faith seems foolish, for those who humbly embrace their need for a savior, and for those who trust in God and nothing else, we have the never-ending, never-changing, always true and sufficient mercy of God. And that's the good news of Christmas. That's the good news of Advent. That's the good news of the gospel, that God did all of it so that we don't boast in his presence, but so that he would get the glory through a manger on a cross in our lives and in this season. So let that draw your hearts to worship. For the next four weeks, intentionally pause and remember that a Messiah has come to save you from your sins to reconcile you to God. And my hope is that on December 25th, when we wake up, Lord willing, surrounded by family, surrounded by joy, that our first and foremost, our hearts and our posture would say with Mary, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. Let's pray together. God, thank you for Advent. God, if there was ever a year where it feels like I need it, feels like we need it, that'd be 2020, right? And you give this gift of a a time, a season in the church calendar where we can remember the hope, love, joy, and peace that is promised us in Christ Jesus. We get to intentionally pause and force our hearts to celebrate when we don't want to celebrate, force our hearts to give you thanks when we don't want to give you thanks, to practice the discipline and the command of gratitude that you call us to in scripture to remember that you remember your promises, that you remember your covenants, that you remember that you love, that you sent Jesus to redeem. And thanks for the gift of a savior. Thanks for Jesus in a manger born to Mary, lowly, despised, rejected, outcast, and yet Jesus who died went to the grave and rose again. Thanks that one day he's coming back. And that Advent is not just a season where we remember that he came one time, but we look forward with great anticipation and hope and joy and excitement that one day Jesus is going to return. This time, not as a lowly babe in a manger, but this time as a ruling and reigning king to make all things new and defeat Satan, sin, and death forever. So let this season, let the next four weeks be a time where we remember and celebrate and we look forward and celebrate. And we love you. Probably sings in Jesus' name. Amen.